0: And we're back with season two of the Modern Man podcast. Uh, I'm really pleased to be back. Uh, we've got ten episodes locked and loaded uh, for series one, and we've got some amazing guests lined up for this next series. Now, um, first of all, I'm really, really delighted to uh, welcome Mr. Paul Lowe from Speaking from My Heart. Um, I believe you're all the way out there in Torrevieja, huh? No?
1: That's correct, hey, yeah.
0: Wonderful. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that as well and, uh, a bit more. Um, so Paul Lowe runs a uh, podcast called uh, Speaking from My Heart, which is also a, a series of books and uh, coaching programs and so forth. He's uh he's uh, he's a coach a bit like myself and with a very, very interesting background. Um, so we're just gonna go through and um have a chat with him a little bit more and find out what he's got to say. So, Paul, if you just want to give yourself just a little short introduction and then we'll get cracking with the chat.
1: Okay, sure. Thanks. Uh, Thanks for inviting me on, first of all, Fido. Absolute pleasure. Um, So my story starts, and I'll say my story because that's what it is. It's true, but it's a story nonetheless. Yep. And it starts back when I was a young child, being brought up in uh, inner city Nottingham. Very, very poor um, council estate there. Uh, Poor, but very happy. Yeah, and happy brought up with my mother and my grandmother uh, and a beautiful um, mongrel dog called Rocky. So life was blissful until the age of eight, that is. And that's when my mother remarried. Um, the guy, um, I shall subsequently refer to him as the Beast because um, his behaviour, um, certainly after the first six, nine months of the marriage, turned dramatically for the worse and it was based on violence, it was based on cruelty, it was based on, and I will use the word torture, abuse, it was it was horrendous and that was both towards me and my mother. Um, my mother took regular beatings to try and protect me and I mean physical beatings. Um, I took a lot of um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, and uh yeah it was just a horrible place to be and this prevailed for about six years for me and um to the point then where um by this time i was drinking I'd f- my mother was a secret drinker that was part of her coping mechanism and i started drinking i found out where her stashes of whiskey and sherry were and i started yeah. helping myself and this is a kid of 10 by the way i was gonna say yeah um, and I also developed this addiction towards a certain football club called Nottingham Forest in oh, the fervent man. belief that one day I would play for Nottingham Forest. And that gave me a reason for being a reason to be alive because everything else was falling around, um, or, you know, falling apart around me. Um, and, That addictiveness uh, came to a head, and I've even got the date of the 23rd of March, 1974, uh, five past seven in the evening, where I couldn't cope anymore. And that came on the back of two back-to-back defeats for for Nottingham Forest. Uh, On the Thursday night, they played away in a cup replay, uh, and the quarterfinal of the Cup to Newcastle, got beat one nil, and then, uh, who played black and white, and that's significant. And then 48 hours later, played away at Fulham at Craven Cottage and mm-hmm. got beat 2 0. Um, Fulham also played black and white. Right. And I developed this thing called the black and white curse, uh, which was to haunt me later in life. And anyway, what happened on that Saturday, the 23rd, um, I just couldn't cope. I couldn't understand Fidel, this betrayal by my football club. How, how could they betray me? I love them so much with everything that I got. They were my everything. Yep. Because say everything else was falling apart around me. So I gave them my power, my focus, my energy, my emotion. I gave them everything and yep. there they are betraying me, letting me down. And I couldn't cope with that betrayal. And with that added to what was going off at home, there was only one solution and that was to end it all. So I set up, I ran away from home that night and went to a, a local sort of mining area where there's some caves where the coal lorries used to go through. And I took a razor blade with me. And I can remember, as I say, it was five past seven and I, and I sat there crying and my old my head's in emotional turmoil. My whole world's... Been six years of total chaos and devastation, and I thought I just knew that one swipe on my left wrist with this blade, and it'd be over. And then a really strange thing happened. There was like this surge come through me, and I can remember just falling forward like that, and I dropped the blade. And it's this sound, you know, this sounds so strange, but I've had these moments twice later on in life over other issues or other challenges. But basically I dropped the blade and I felt this immense power within me that says, no, never again. Never again will you run from everything. Now, I suppose in the modern day terminology, uh, Fidel, it's what we call fight or flight. Yep. As a kid of 13 and off, I had got a clue. All I know was my I was very, very upset. I wanted to end it all and something had happened. There was nobody around me, so no, nobody had pushed me or anything like that. But I did get this kind of, you know, this watershed, this revelationary moment in my life that said, right, okay, my purpose on this earth now is to fight for people that need fighting for. And that was it. I had that realization as a kid, of 13 and a half, and that was it. So I went went back home. I got a massive, massive beating. And I can remember looking the beast in the eye and saying, one day I will kill you. I will kill you. Wow. So this carried on, the beatings carried on and the torture and everything carried on to the point where eventually I did go and live with my grandma. Hmm. Um, anyway, what happened thereafter was my, I'd created this whole black and white mindset uh, where I'd either drink, if I did something, I had to do it to the extreme. What I now rationalise uh, as part of my needs was, I needed massive significance. I needed to be number one. I need to know that I mattered. I created this whole belief system um, and these whole, whole self-fulfilling prophecies around what was a way of life for me. Uh, and as I say, I needed something to believe in. I had a trial for Forrest. I failed that. Um, but interestingly, that didn't derail me. Although I had that acute focus of they are my world and I need this, I kind of knew deep down that actually wasn't quite good enough uh, and it didn't matter because after this kind of revelationary moment, you know, I had a big purpose in this world. And and this is all very, this is how I rationalise it now, looking back. Obviously, as I say, as a kid, I'd have none of this kind of intellectual ability and certainly not the emotional capacity to make sense of it all. It was just literally survival on its feet in the moment, uh, literally in the moment. And so this carried on for years where I'd have a big black phase where I'd be mad on the drink and I'd sabotage everything that I'd built up. I would give myself a time that usually six months on, six months off. So the black phase would be when I was drinking and self-destructing. Then I would, like a light switch, flip over to the white phase, go abstinent, train hard, you know, football, boxing, rugby, I'd really train hard, out doing five mile runs every morning at six o'clock, get myself into real peak fitness and and particularly being mentally sharp and, and, and giving everything to charity and, you know, what I, I suppose, is rather patronising now, but fighting for the underdog. And then I would sabotage it all again because I had severe deservedness issues by being told, you're nothing, boy. You'll never be loved. You're, you know, and all that that garbage that went with that. And, and oh, I'm being polite there. So yeah, there was there was kind of all that going off.
0: Um, that's a in, in the early years. An interesting sort of start to life. I want to I, I want to I get back a little bit and just ask you a few questions about some of the stuff that that, that you said, if you don't mind. So you talk about meeting your stepdad or the the, the beast, as you call them. And um, when you were six, did you ever, did you have a relationship with your dad?
1: Um, Before that, you thought, um, my dad, my biological dad was, um, how can I put this? He was just a guy that looked after number one. He, right. he left when I was three and his drink and his boxing um, were very, very prominent in his life. And that was it. There was no room for anything else. Certainly not a child.
0: Um, was he was he a boxer or did he watch the bo-
1: He he, I mean, he was an amateur boxer, but he was. I think he had um, quite a lot to do with a certain a professional boxer at the time. I'm led to believe, and he was kind of in his his backyard, and there was all this drinking and yeah um, um, stuff going off.
0: The the fight game, and did you call when your stepdad arrived there? Obviously, you giving him this name of the of the beast. Is that something you called him then, or was it? Is this something you've done? No, that's
1: something that I've done sort of more latterly in life. But You know, as I've been able to make sense of this um, utter confusion, I think it's just the name that... Because I can't... I mean, I've got, you know, it's interesting. I stayed in digs recently that overlook the place where I was brought up. And I mean literally overlook it to the point where I can look down in the backyard of where all this torture took place. And, and I'm talking, re- you know, very recently, and I just had a, you know, a period about six, six, eight months ago where I looked down and it's like, it was just, there was nothing there. There was no anger. There was, there was nothing. And I thought, yeah, you know, that really is the, the epitome of, of you've got this sorted because it, you know, when there's no sort of emotional hold over you, yep. one way or the other, it's like, it is what it is. It just it oh.
0: becomes fact. Then once we let go of the the emotions that we attach to those past events, once the emotions are let go of, it's mainly what I do with with timeline therapy is allow people to, to do that. Um, it then it, it changes the whole game, doesn't it? Really, and you can look back at it, sort of factually, yeah. which is difficult. Yeah. Um, and obviously, you said you kind of like you witnessed violence towards your your mum at at that point at a young age as well. Um and there was this powerful negative masculine energy in, in, in your life that was coming in and and behaving in this way. Like, did that trigger anything kind of like how what was your behavior like during that time? Was it was it defensive? Were you protective of your mum or were you were you were, you know, we talked about fight or flight. What was happening to you at that such a young age? Um kind of like internally, if you can remember.
1: Oh, I can remember. I can remember (laughs) because I had subsequent years of a certain pattern being created and I became violent. Yeah. It's like, okay, this is, this is, I mean, obviously I say yet again, I didn't understand what was going off. This was very raw. This was very crude. This was survival at its most basic. Um, okay. Is this what I need to do to survive? Fine. Well, it wasn't fine, but you know what I mean? And the whole kind of involvement of my life. And, you know, it's interesting I created this when we talk about rules that shape our life. I created a rule within my world that if I saw a woman or a child ever being sort of attacked or abused or shouted at, I would jump in and I would be judge, jury and executioner, not knowing anything around what the situation was that preceded it. Mm. Because that was obviously my projection of the world.
0: Is that still a kind of like a natural reaction of yours do you, do you if you if you witness that kind of behavior, do you still respond in a similar way? Um, no, no, obviously no, we've had a follow through no, no,
1: my life's completely different to what it was in those uh, yeah in those turbulent years, completely different and And I would say that the learnings I've taken from that, and as I say, I've worked with some of the the top practitioners in the world around their various strategies. Uh, Insights and you know that kind of stuff, and and obviously you know taking responsibility for my own journey. Yeah. Um, no, I'm, I'm certainly not certainly not in that uh, not uh, not in that place anymore.
0: And then you talked about like you were involved with uh, Nottingham Forest as a young player, young young lad. In this yeah, I was
1: 14 of- when I uh, joined, barely 14 when I went for the trial.
0: Yeah, and what was it like being in that environment in that in that positive, masculine environment, if if that's what it was, I mean, was it? a po- Were you coming across more positive uh, male role models? Were you around that playing play with the book? Because there was never any women in the club apart from the tea lady, and in, in, in those days, I'm, I'm guessing. Um So, like, what? Well, again, with hindsight, because it's stuff you don't think about, <laughs> thirteen, fourteen. But did that give you a different kind of different kind of angle on what 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 men could be like?
1: Not really, no. Because even in those days, professional football was very competitive, yep. and I wasn't really in it for that. I wanted, for me, it was a focus. You know, um, you know, when Robbins talked about the six human needs and the need for significance, what that would have given me, and what that did give me, it gave me that focus um, of significance. Because there I was on the hallowed turf. I mean, you know, amongst my peers, it's like wow. You know, he's been on the hallowed turf of called the city ground. He kicked a ball at the city ground. And it's like, it was kind of Roy of the Rover stuff. Um, so, you know, there's all this kind of stuff going off really. So no, it wasn't a case of being um, surrounded by positive male role models. There was none of that really. It was, I was still in survival mode and, you know, it was about me really. And I didn't know it was about me, but I just wanted to feel... I don't know. I wanted a reason to be alive
0: so you didn't like you didn't get anything from being sort of part of the team it was still very you were still very self-focused um at, at that point and weren't looking outside around you at the coaches or the or your teammates or anything else like that, no, did, did not, not that. No. speaking about that what did you I mean what were your friendship groups like did you did you have a social circle did you have a social life did you have mates
1: Not really, no. Because of my very single-minded survival behavior, I alienated a lot of people. And that carried on for years, really, because I think this kind of mindset of I will win at all costs actually pushed a lot of people away because, you know, within that I'd created a lot of rules. I was really, really fragile and insecure. That's the reality. But rather than show that to guys... I would I play the tough guy and yeah. I can remember you know certainly as a, a teenager and a young man giving a lot of guys good idings and then crying afterwards it's like, why have I done that what have I just done and why have I done that but it was this vulnerability this insecurity this my, inside my world was completely shattered
0: and so did you ever speak to anybody about that while it whilst it was going on
1: not really, because I mean, you you know, putting this into context, you know, you've got to understand that this was like, you know, the the 70s. And in, yeah, yeah. in those days, uh, I sound like an old grandfather. Well, I actually, <laughs> am, but, um, You just kind of get on with it. Yeah, you know, sure. big boys don't cry. And that's one of the things I'm massively hot on now when I work with clients. It's like this stereotype of big boys don't cry. Uh, I mean, what a load of rubbish that is. There was a... Um, I hesitate to name him because I'm not quite sure, but there was certainly a professional middleweight boxer, world champion, that made a statement. And and he said, I will take the physical pain of boxing all day long. Not a problem. But I can never come to terms with the emotional pain that comes with loving and losing a woman. And I kind of understood that, that emotional pain.
0: there's 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 no contact I mean I obviously like I partake in boxing myself um on a sort of competitive level with sparring as you can probably see I've got a sport in a rather good shiner at the moment (laughs) um I was explaining to somebody like lots of people whenever you talk to them about any kind of combat sports which I've partaken in in various different ones throughout my life um they always ask about the pain and, and and whether it hurts and it's I, it just it doesn't really does it you know I, I, <laughs> once you've been through that I was explaining it to someone today a, a woman who, who's just started doing kickboxing and she's I said that you're going to get into sparring you know and actually getting into to know what it's like to, to get hit to get punched to get kicked um and there's this whole massive fear and I was like well, once you kind of move through that you understand that it just doesn't hurt mm-hmm. it doesn't hurt you can't say the same for um for, for the things that you go through emotionally in life and that's that's really true completely different stuff altogether all right so um let's talk a little bit about football um i i can relate to this a little bit I, not, not as much I, I was a big football fan arsenal was my club still is i was a season ticket holder up until about four years ago um when i gave up my season ticket and then pretty much since then i just don't watch football anymore I stopped mm. going to the games so I couldn't even tell you I probably couldn't tell you the start 11 for Arsenal right now um I can't tell you that the, the um who's playing who when like I'm constantly surprised when my mates can you come to the football and I'm like who's, who's playing they can't believe it's me talking I'm much happier because of it um <laughs> yeah. like, like football is a big uh, did you used to go to the games on your own yeah, I did, Forest.
1: and it's interesting. When um, I mean Forest are, you know, in the sort of early
0: seventies, they, they were big, man. That was
1: yeah. Well, they were a, they were a lonely second division club then, um, and then in nineteen seventy five, a certain character by the name of Brian Clough arrived. Yeah, and um, interesting. What the question you asked earlier on, uh, Fidel, about positive role models? Because although at that time I never met Cloughy. The influence that guy had on my life was
0: phenomenal. Yeah. I don't think it was just you. I think when he arrived on the scene, I think his his personality shone yeah. a beacon across into lots of people's lives, is not it? Big guy. Yeah,
1: you know, just the kind of, the way I perceive this authority figure. and But yeah. I you know, and I've subsequently had conversations with, with his family. Um, but there was something about him that I could relate to, and I didn't know what yeah but it was it who was this brash guy that spoken? you know he had this kind of interview with Parky Parkinson and had the yeah. interview with Muhammad Ali and <laughs> and all this kind of stuff who is this guy and I just felt drawn to him yeah. in a way that I can't explain and and as I say, I had this conversation with with the eldest son um because when Brian died in two thousand and four, I did a big function to um Um, to commemorate his life because by this time I had actually got involved in professional football as a mentor with the young academy lads at Nottingham Forest. So I did actually, inadvertently, so be careful what you focus on because it will come back and I did actually um, end up in the academy at Nottingham Forest serving the club, albeit as a mentor, not a player.
0: Brilliant. Life is (laughs) funny like that, isn't it? Um, Yeah, well, Clappy was a, I don't know, he is, there are throughout life and and history and stuff there are those real beacons of and he was a real shining example of of masculinity almost modern masculinity he was he was right on the cusp wasn't he because he was very old school alpha male type don't mess with me these are the rules this is what i say everybody does what it does but he also was a very philosophical man wasn't he and a very a very thoughtful guy a very emotionally intelligent man um, absolutely he was and he brought all of that to the game of football um, and, and to TV and to the fans because um, he was very articulate Was it? in his own way he was very articulate wasn't he um, very much so and what's interesting for
1: me and I've certainly made sense of this uh, Fido from my own perspective about how a guy and you to use your terminology alpha male is perceived by the outside world yeah yes Yes, he was, however, however, there was another side to the coin which was very sensitive, very caring. Yep. The family, the matriarch, the whole yep. kind of belief that I suppose it's what we would now term that feminine energy, yep. the other side of the coin, and that's yep. what I come to understand about. What I would term, when, when guys say to me, and they use that term,
0: Fidel, about alpha male... Yeah.
1: Tell me what, what do, what's your version
0: and what, what do you actually mean by that? So term? For, for, for me, Brian Clough would be a, an absolute sh- perfect example of what a true alpha is for, for, for me. It's that ultimate in, in, in leadership. Um, just leading by example, demonstrating. He, he lived his absolute core values. You could cut him in half and in any given situation, he knew what he believed. He knew what he thought was right and he would act on that and put his life on it. Um, and... Yeah, it came with all of the other stuff with that emotional intelligence, with pure, true respect for for, for women, um, with a uh, humility as well. Like he was always learning. If he came across anybody that that had stuff that he didn't know, he would drink in all of that knowledge and ask some questions and everything else like that. And he spoke openly about that. So for me, that's what true alpha is—a I'm I'm a real leader of men um, and and women. And and when you get somebody like that, they have a magnetic personality because people feel safe around them people feel safe in their presence they feel safe to uh, to allow them to to lead them and they'll they'll follow them naturally um and that's what i think true alpha is there's a lot of mistaken use of the word i think but for me alpha is about being is that leadership role it's the person that everybody follows and they're fairly few and far between but when you when you see him you you spot them, didn't you and i think he was one of them
1: yeah yeah, I suppose um, you know from my own perspective. Uh, you know, one of the one of the sort of insights I share about that when I ask that question of people, you know, well, what do you perceive an alpha male to be? It's like, okay, so what about the other side of that coin? Because life and 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 energy and arrow is about balance. Yep. Whether we understand it or agree with it, well, that's another story. But it's about balance. So this. So, sort of stereotypical male masculine energy, but what about the other side? So, you know, do you believe, and I often ask this question around in the context of alpha males do you believe that big boys don't cry then? You know, that ridiculous stereotype that we've been brought up. You know, it went donkey's years for me, Fidel, before I allowed myself to cry and heal. Yeah. Because I'd been given that belief system shut up, big boys don't cry you just fight, you just fight, stand up, be like a man. And all that nonsense that that was, you know, that was fed to me by society.
0: Yeah, it's dangerous. I mean, and it's an interesting conversation in itself, that the, the sort of not crying Um my sort of feelings on on the matter as they stand at the moment and i'm constantly learning and drinking knowledge and speaking to people like yourself who've been on this journey a little bit longer than i have um is that um it's nonsense to tell people not to cry it's nonsense that as a man you wouldn't you wouldn't cry i think there is um i'm always wary is probably the wrong word but i think that also that openness and that um that emotional um letting go there's a time there are times and places for it you know and i think that's part of as as we grow as a as a man is is making sure that that we have the intelligence and the knowledge this the self-awareness to have created spaces and places where we can go and and be like that and let ourselves and take the time to do that on a regular basis if if necessary and, and needed and don't hold it back just for the sake of it but um, but also, you know, just kind of like wandering around and crying at the drop of a hat and stuff like that. I don't think it can, can be particularly helpful for a lot of people, you know, being overly emotional as a man sometimes because depending on your role. So when we talk about alpha, we can't do that without talking about other. It's, it's a kind of the, 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 idea of, of alpha is the sort of leader of a pack, which means there are other people in that pack. And it, and it makes me laugh. It's not funny at all, actually, but there's but, but an interesting concept that then then you have to have be, beta men and, and all of this, um, which is really seen as, as negative. And that kind of upsets me because in all other conversations, when we talk about a team or we talk about um, you know a company and a company role, we all know and we're allowed to say that there's a leader and then there are people like the leader can never function without a team behind them, without other people carrying out the different roles. And I think that's exactly the same. I mean, being a leader in itself is not an aspiration for everybody. It's lonely. It's tough at the top. You generally, the idea of being a leader is you're the one that will sacrifice everything for the good of everybody else that's following you. You know, that comes with a load of responsibility and weight and decision-making it's not this glorified position that everybody kind of s- seems to think it is so being alpha whether you're alpha male or alpha female comes with all this other stuff it's not something it's not but it is a position it absolutely is because human beings are, are kind of like pack animals and we do follow these people they do appear in all different walks of our lives and we follow them when we're magnetized and we're drawn to them so they do exist and when we're in their presence um, we then fit into a role, but behind that, and we allow them to function. We help them, and we support them, in whatever whatever context that's in. So um, sometimes I feel like a separate conversation is to talk about the power of beta and and your use in 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 society and your use in the pack. And actually, that that's not a, a secondary thing. It's just as important as alpha. It's just a different a different role within a, within a group. But we've sidetracked quite a lot on that.
1: yeah i mean just just to sort of clarify uh fidel what you said about the you know time and place for the the emotional uh, yeah um, i mean i think for me the the critical thing is to know that is to have the awareness yes uh, and the emotional strength to know that that is in your that 's in your toolbox
0: absolutely yeah,
1: yeah. That, that, I think that's the critical thing and, yeah, for sure. and, and not being held prisoner by that that sort of ruling or that conditioning that says yeah, well, yeah. Actually, um, you, you know big boys don't cry and it's it's just actually you know kind of dispelling that because one of the things that I would you know found myself doing a few years ago when I was in this kind of very ego driven very masculine sort of drinking with all the boys kind of thing I would actually Consciously try and dilute that by saying, okay, guys, you know, we'd be at the bar on a Saturday night on the on the beer or whatever. And it's like, when was the last time you cried then, Fred? Joe, Bill? What? What were you on about? No, no, when, when was you crying? And then it's interesting that as the night wore on, how one by one they'd come and have a private well, I ain't gonna tell Fred Joe or Bill, but you know what? Last week, because of X, Y, or Z, and and, and you know. We all feel so much better for that emotional release, but it is that conditioning, isn't it, that we're brought up with that? As I say, big boys don't cry.
0: I mean, this is the sort of stuff we talk about in the Modern Man Club in my Facebook community. It's one that pops up fairly regularly, maybe once once a month, something like that. We talk. um, Somebody will come along and just talk about the uh, something that just hit them and they found themselves crying. And you'll get guys coming and talking, and sometimes people will just ask the question, "When was the last time you did?" I put up an interesting post today. We've we've been talking about vulnerability. And there was a question, you know, what are you currently feeling vulnerable about? Um, Which has led to a really interesting conversation. A lot of guys kind of opening up um, and and talking about that and a discussion about the word itself, which has been interesting. Um, All right. So I don't want to get chai up too much. It is really amazing. Me and you could clearly talk for several days, no doubt. I want to get back onto your story a little bit more. So we've done... You've had your trials for Nottingham Forest. Um, then you've you've fallen into this cycle approach to life where you're doing, uh, getting yourself into sort of peak fitness, uh, super fit, and then you're self sabotaging all of that um, with with alcohol with, with drugs or is it just alcohol? Is alcohol violence. Yeah, were your um, weapons of choice. Um, and and it's interesting
1: around the drugs thing because I was in a fraternity that were very much, um, drugs orientated and how yeah. I never crossed that line. I often look back and think, how did that not happen? Yeah. Because it was part of my culture. It was part of my, you know, my whole way of being not for me personally, but certainly within my immediate fraternity. Yeah. And that is amazing how that never probably cause I was that engrossed in my own, in my own world and my own survival mechanism that I didn't really understand or need anything else. I've got my life sorted. Um, And I use that term relatively because I've got my way of being. For me, this is life. You know, I'll have six months black, six months white, six months black, six months white. You know, that gave me the certainty of being able to control the uncontrollable, if that makes sense. Yep. You know, because I would decide when I would go on a binge and I would decide when I would finish it the uncertainty and the variety that that gave me is well I didn't know what I would do when I was you know when I'd been three months or even three weeks or even three days into a you know I probably fancy myself as the great next Mario Lanza because I used to perform in pubs you see thinking I've got this great loud tenor voice because I was brave you see because I'm drunk and all of a sudden I'm full of the demon drink and now I fancy myself as Mario Lanza with this great singing voice and, you know, it got a modicum of applause, which made me feel great. But that masqueraded, Fidel, the insecurity and the vulnerability that was inside from my childhood because I was, I was, I will, I will never say I was broken because I believe as human beings we're not broken. I believe yeah. we lose our way a little bit or a lot, as the case, but we're not broken. We're not machines. Nope. We don't need fixing. I think we just need a bit of, you know, TLC or a bit of reassurance or guidance to get us back on that path. Yeah.
0: Language is really important around now. I got taken to task quite early on in my coaching area um, for using those those phrases about broken and fixed, and um, and I, I never have done since. Actually, since I sat down and gave a good bit of thought. So, what were you? What, what what was what was the age group when you were were doing this? How old were you
1: when I was doing
0: when you were doing the whole the black and white thing? Is it that like sort of late teens, early twenties?
1: Uh, yeah, that's kind of well. I mean, I suppose that its start was what I sort of uh, became. Well, retrospectively, our classes was was that sort of back to nineteen seventy three. Sorry, seventy four, um, because that was the Newcastle United on the Thursday, the form on the Saturday, and then my life did become, you know, this polarized way of being. Yeah. Um, even to the point where you know, in subsequent years, if Forrest played a team in black and white. So I know they're gonna lose. and know they're gonna lose. And you know the local rivals at the time, which was Notts County, actually playing black and white.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So, like, what were you doing during this? Then, what were you doing, like, for for a living? What did you do for work? How did you earn your money? How were you functioning in your when you were doing your sort of off six months, the black six months? How were you surviving?
1: Yeah, I mean. Basically, when when I first left school, I got a job in a warehouse. I mean, I went to actually one of the top grammar schools, um, right. really, really sort of old school. But I never, I say, I went. I was on the I was on the register. It was an old <laughs> boys I never went because I was too busy playing football, practicing, and I was living with my grandmother by this time. So there was nobody to kind of keep me in line, parentally. I mean, she was she was a great soul blesser, but I was I was a free spirit and. You know, I was out there sort of roguish-like. I was never, I don't think, malicious. Um, Not outwardly, anyway. Obviously, the caveat on that being when I sat myself up as judge, jury, and executioner. But, um, so I was out there. I got a job in a warehouse when I left school with no, hardly any qualifications and expected to achieve very high. But because my world was in turmoil, I didn't. Um, the, the, The warehouse thing was great because... All the guys that I first met when I was 16 and a half were all Forest fans, a lot older than me. They was all drinking. And that was just about the time when Forest was starting to become a good team. Um, you know, they got, when I started following them in the early 70s, they were a lowly second division side. As I say, Cluffy took over in January 75. But it took him three seasons before they got yeah. promoted. And then the rest is history. But interestingly, when they started doing well, I left them. I yeah. wasn't interested. It's like, you don't need me anymore. Well, they didn't need me anyway. But this was how my way of thinking and belief system was at the time. That they needed, we were still married in my, in my mind, in my heart, despite yeah. the fact that they broke my heart and that, you know, I still was emotionally attached to that football club. But when they started doing well and conquering Europe, it's like, okay, I've done my bit now. You're stable. You don't need me. And I'm off. Do you do you still get to games? Do you still follow them? Yes, I do. I, in fact, I went to one a couple of a couple of days ago. Yeah,
0: yeah. It's a funny that they bond, isn't it, between a a man and his club? It's like someone was asking me the other day. You know. And, and the dislikes as well. There's still something, you know, my hackles still go up when I think and look at Tottenham. I was watching the other day, the, the game against Man City. Someone showed me that and I was just like, that would have been wonderful if it was anyone apart from Tottenham. <laughs> I would have really enjoyed that. But look at their faces. Look at them and I get quite animated. And um, and even though I'm just, like I said, I'm, I'm kind of out of football now, you can't erase that. from. You can't mm-hmm. erase the emotion that you have with, with your team. And, and and kind of what that means.
1: Yeah, I mean, I've gone on record with Ellis saying I was married once. I've had three engagements, had countless girlfriends, but I've only ever had one football team.
0: But it used to, and one of the things for me though was what why I kind of like stopped going. Now was because when during those days, the, the fans were important. They had a place at the club. They had a voice. The management and the owners there was thought listening players you know, you were close to the players, there was kind of like three, four parts to the football club and the fans were absolutely a part of that. And that really, certainly in the Premiership, was just, just doesn't exist anymore. And it certainly doesn't in the top clubs. You know, at Arsenal, when I gave up my season ticket, they couldn't care less whether they cared about as much as whether I turned up to the game as whether Mr. Nike does about whether I buy a pair of Nike or Adidas for my next pair of trainers. They could not care less on a personal level um, whether they got or gained, gained a fan. Um, and that for me was just like well, in that case, I'm just am just a punter, literally. I'm just purchasing a a products and um, and and that kind of kind of stabbed the the. It, it felt like when you find out your wife is only with you for your for your money or whatever. I guess <laughs> a little bit like that, yeah. and then really, she's just yeah. not interested in sleeping with all. <laughs> Maybe cool. something like that. A little bit heartbroken. Um. Okay, so let's talk about that. we were talking about wives and and, and stuff. You said you've been married on a few occasions.
1: Uh, once, but what? in the, oh. if just once, uh, in the true nature, Fidel, of podcasting authenticity, to you know, it's all live and it's not perfect. Can yeah. I ask you to speak for one minute while I visit the little boy's room?
0: <laughs> you can too yeah. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> I'll be uh, one I, second. I'll talk about Arsenal. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, so we're talking about like uh, marriages and and, and relationships. So you've told me earlier um that they played quite a huge part in your life and certainly in in you getting getting better um and turning your life around and changing stuff for you with some of the women in your life so tell us a little Mm -hmm. bit more about about them and um and how that's worked
1: yeah okay so i got married at 23 and that was more or less um you know the um one of the girls that uh, that I grew up with on the council estate and I felt and that was quite a conscious thing that I need I actually needed to get married and try and settle down because I think uh, had I not I would have actually killed somebody right Because of the way my mind was and the reality is actually I shouldn't have got married because it was for the wrong reason yeah. but ironically um, you know I think it has it's um, it, it did keep me. It certainly kept me out of prison um, for, for doing a life sentence, and um, it was yeah. I look back on that now, Fidel, and uh, as I say, I stay with the ex-wife when I when I come back to the UK, and uh, you know, I've got three amazing kids all grown up now, I've got grandkids as well. Yeah. Um, but it was it was a strange one because I've apologized to so many times about my behavior because. Obviously, I was wild. I was still out drinking um, six months on, six months off, you know, create, creating all kind of chaos because my basically my head was still screwed. And the more life went on, I mean, it was, it was kind of become even more and more polarised because in the wider phases, as I say, you know, I had three brilliant kids, um, jobs, you know, the pattern was the same but at a higher level. But the pattern was also the same at a lower level. And you know i was not a good husband i was not a good family man for me it was that protectiveness i will keep my kids safe at all costs almost sort of it's like some kind of hillbilly connotation i'd sit on the doorstep with a shotgun because i'll keep my kids safe kind yeah. of thing well actually more to parenting than that um but uh, that have, very... you, have you spoken to your kids about that since yeah, yeah. I mean, we're, you know, we've got great relationships. Um, what's and, uh, their
0: recollection of, 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 of you during that time?
1: You were dead strict, Dad. Yeah. That's all you get from them. There's no judgment. There's no, you know, um, yeah, that's all you get. Dad, you were dead strict. And that's it. That's all they ever say. Um, and you can tell that there's no kind of resentment or animosity or anything. Because I've been honest and open with my kids, particularly in latterly, about, you know, the mess I was in. And, you know, I've said, look, you know, try and take some learning from this. I wasn't a bad guy. I'm a soft, warm, loving guy who knows about his strength. and My strength is my emotional um, ability to to love. But that was lost. And I'll come to – and please hold me to that conversation about – the, the, the dog situation um rocky the dog uh Fidel, because it's very powerful I believe in terms of of learning and, and breaking down these stereotypes, particularly in this word and this concept we keep using of people thinking they're alpha male and that oak tree mentality
0: um there's the, 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 a man will no matter how tough he is man a man and his dog is a is a <laughs> is a separate i've got one here man my 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 best mate jackson. Um, just been for a bit of an emotional thing. He's been for the for the vet. He's back. He's he's an old big boy. He's half Rottweiler, half Paul Mastiff. There's nothing but sleep. Um <laughs> but yeah, man. Wow. Oh, that's probably the last time I cried my the dog the dog before him, my Rottweiler, Zico, um, died when I had to have him put down. I cried for days. I didn't get out of bed for like two, maybe three days. Yeah. Yeah. yeah.
1: Um and so um, you know, this, this, and it's probably you know, appropriate to talk about this in the context of this particular yeah. family dynamic for, you know, because what happened was, um, open to this happened about three and a half, maybe four years ago. I went to pick my, uh, my eldest daughter up for a job interview. Right. And as I did, so I went up to her house and she was sort of, you know, getting a coat on and whatever. And this beautiful, beautiful soul, um, called Max, uh, a border collie, absolutely beautiful. Yeah. And he just sat there and he was staring at me, he got these piercing blue eyes. Yeah. And I said to my daughter, so I said, damn, he's, he's, he's like, he won't take his eyes off me, he's like staring at me all the time. <sighs> oh, it's all right, Dan, he loves you. Oh, it's like, okay, I said, I'll wait for you in the car down the drive. So I went down, I went down to the drive, got in the car, and she came come down a couple of minutes later she locked up and she said, are you okay, Dad?'" And, and my eyes were, were filling up. And I said, yeah. She said, can I tell you something? You know, I'm bearing in mind by this time, my daughter's in her early thirties. And I said, yeah, of course, yeah. She said, I've never, ever, ever seen my odd man dad cry. And I said, you know what? And there's the problem. She said, I don't understand, dad. So let me explain something to you. When Max was sitting there staring at me, that took me right back when I was a kid of six or seven and Rocky my mongrel dog then was my pride and joy he was my everything and do you know who your dad really is after all these years and everything he's been through never mind all the fights never mind all the scars never mind all this bravado do you know who he is he's that little seven-year-old kid that loved Rocky the mongrel dog and he's still that guy today that's who your real dad is never mind the rest he just masks she said, "Dad, I get it," and that laid to that laid a lot of demons away from our world. Then, because what that did for you, Dale was actually expose that. Um, and I think we have to be careful around this We word vulnerability. But think, we all yeah. are at source. We all are. No, you know what's the saying about no man is an island or a rock or whatever it is. Well, we're not. We're human no. beings. We're people. Absolutely. And and that was that was as recent as I say it's three and a half four years ago
0: animals have a way of touching us don't they um it's almost as if there's a degree of separation where we can be emotional and allow it. it is less complicated isn't it um to be in love with an animal to to have that respect to have that thing and to to open up to an animal um it's just far far less complicated it's it's just very cut and dry is not it they are loyal they look to us um, and we can give that back and so quite often sort of historically, isn't there? There's, there's lots of stories and tales. And when I remember uh, one of my favourite books as a kid was uh, uh, Jack London, uh, Call of the Wild. Yeah, studied it for English I've, literature. i read that oh. book so many times, When I like from mm-hmm. when I was six or seven, it's uh, one of my bucket list things is to go up and do that at the uh, Yukon Trail and all of that stuff. And I read that and I read White Fang and I read all these books and it's about these, these men out in these horrible, tough conditions, You know, fighting against each other and the bears and the and the Indians and everything else like that and the other guys, everybody out for their gold. But the the relationship with their dogs, you know, Um, and he explored that and wrote about it really, really well, which which started my love for dogs. I'm 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 a big dog guy. I know all about the breeds. I've studied them. Yeah, Um, yeah, I'm I'm a big dog guy, and it's quite interesting how there has always been that masculine connection between men and the a man and his dog you know it's kind of what we need but we need, we still need it you know we still need that place where we can express our love and feel and and feel like we're loved back um, which is which is interesting
1: and i think that is for me the epitome of this kind of this masculine security of knowing who you truly are that your real deep core and so, to the point where you actually don't give a damn what people think or, or, you know, or what label they stick on you yeah. because that's their label that invariably they may or may not be projecting onto you. But I have a saying, uh, Fidel, that labels are for jars, not people. So stick what label you want on me, but you know what? It's your label. You've given, you have given me that label, whatever it says on that label. Yeah. I know what I am at my core. I know what I am, and I don't need anybody's approval. And I don't mean that in an arrogant way. No, no. But I know amazing. who I am. Yeah, yeah. And I accept and I embrace with gratitude my this whole thing called being a human being and everything that goes with it. And I allow that. The, the trick is, I think, for me, what I've learned is if it's of a challenging or or uh, emotionally dra- I don't allow it to, to hang around for too long. So do yeah. I allow my people to say, Oh, you're so sorted. Because you 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 get no problems at all, really. Is that what you think? <laughs> <laughs> you don't know. Because <laughs> I can get angry still with the best of them. I can yeah. get frustrated. What I don't do is allow it to hang around to I catch it.
0: Oh, that's perfect. That's a perfect example. I mean, I I came out, I did quite a, uh, uh, very rare for me. I came out and spoke about, um, put a couple of posts up in, in in the man club about, it's coming up to a year that I've been separated from my wife. I was in a 15 year marriage. It's all very amicable, uh, you know, but it's in that time that I've done all of the, this work. And I know on social media and also to my friends, I've always been the sorted guy, uh, you know, and when I, when I first play out, I was going to see my friends and I'm like, you know, this is happening and they'll be like, yeah, but you'll be all right. Or, or they'd ask the question, "Are you, are you okay?" And they don't really want to hear the answer. Do you know what I mean? They kind of do. And as soon as I start, if I if I crack it, they won't. And it was it's interesting to notice that despite all of the training that I've been through and the, the mental awareness and everything else like that, that my little thing at the end of it was being a life coach doesn't stop life from happening, to you, <laughs> or happening around you or happening to you. It, it allows you to cope with it better. And and that's yeah. it. I mean, it's still. I've been in uncharted territory this year, completely like uncharted territory mentally, um, with, with with the stuff that you go through moving out of that fam, family environment um, into sort of single single life. It's been fun. It's been great, as some of it. Um, but it's uh, it was a lot bigger than I expected it to be, um, and it took me to places that I wasn't expecting to go, and. And, and, and like you, people would go, well, for now, you seem to be handling all of this really well. And I'm like, yeah, but you have no idea. You weren't with me at three o'clock in the morning. Like, do you know what I mean? When I'm sat on the end of my bed going, oh, what if she gets herself a boyfriend? Um, you know? What if I get myself a girlfriend? What if my kids refuse to come and ever stay at my flat? You know?" Um, mm. Stop you from going through that. It allows you to deal with it a bit better, I guess.
1: But- and I think how I term that um, is learning to, you know, sort of dance with the situation of the energy yeah. and to but- let life happen through you not to you and there's a subtle difference. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, like and that. that's, you know, and, and then it's a challenge. I mean, you know, I suppose like any martial arts experts, you know, it's, you're constantly on that, you know, that perfection, uh, which is a bit of a misnomer because I don't believe perfection, but that sort of pursuit of being better. Yeah, for sure. And yeah, so that, I, I can remember a few years ago, I had somebody asked um, um, Deepak Chopra that same question. Do we ever get to a place where we are sorted? And his response was, Well, what do you mean by sorted? And he kind of paraphrased it to say, Where nothing ever bothers you, no, know we look at it. And I thought that's a great way of explaining it. And that allows for that human frailty and that human vulnerability. Because I think that, you know, for for me, Fidel, as well, you know, to use a metaphor, we can stand there staunch like an oak tree, resolute, we will not be moved. Well, the problem with that is when the storm comes in life and uproots the tree, it's gone. So I think the trick is to learn to be more like a willow and bend with life's challenges. And yes, you might be on the floor temporarily, but you know through your flexibility you, you'll come back to you'll
0: come back to source for sure it's good it's powerful stuff um unfortunately paul we are kind of we are running out of time now mate it's been fascinating talking to you um i just let's let's look at the future a little bit then quickly i want to talk to you about your podcast and the work that you're doing now and um some of the stuff i've, I've seen you're, you're coming over here in june with elaine and yes. uh uh you've got a project coming out there you've got your podcast um and and your books just talk to us a little bit more about that and the work you're doing now
1: yeah okay so I've been a long um uh, work obviously through my connections with professional sport particularly football I did a lot of work in the past with young children from inner city estates particularly yeah that's that's a world i understood um and getting them into sport and giving them sporting opportunities um Kind of moved on from that now. Um, as you said, quite rightly, I've got my own podcast called Speaking From Our Hearts. HEARTS being an acronym for helping everybody achieve results towards success. Oh, and I success know. is defined as different for all of us. Um, and also aligned with my podcast, Fidel, is my Speaking From Our Hearts book series, where I invite co-authors in who've got an inspirational story to tell, how they've come from their journey from what I call pain, to philanthropy because from pain to philanthropy includes my three pillars and they are purpose prosperity and philanthropy and that in a nutshell is what my life's been about going back to when i was a kid i needed a purpose my purpose was to fight for others my initial purpose was one day i would play football for forest that didn't happen. So now I needed to fight for the underdog. Anybody that wasn't strong enough to fight for themselves, I will do it for you. That became my purpose. Got me in a lot of trouble, by the way. Huh. hell of a lot of trouble. But, But purpose is not enough. We need more. We need prosperity. We in other words, we need the good things in life. And prosperity... Not necessarily around money. In fact, money for me is the last thing it's around. It's around that emotional prosperity of love, of health, particularly. Our health, in my book, is absolutely number one priority, whether that's physical, whether it's mental. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, You know, the relationships, our healthy relationships, our wealthy relationships. I've got a how model, which is health, others, relationships, and wealth. And it is as simple as that. And so then the third pillar is the philanthropy. So we've we've learned how to live a good life. I think it's incumbent upon us uh, to pass those lessons on to, to humanity, to say, look, particularly if you're in pain, we, you know, we can help you along the journey. So that, in, in very simple terms, Fidel, you know, is a lot of the stuff I do.
0: Well, yeah, well, we, we have many more conversations to have, by the sounds of it, my friend. <laughs> we have many more conversations um so it's uh speaking from speaking from my heart podcast speaking from our hearts our hearts podcast and where can people find that
1: um it's on all the major outlets like omni stitcher itunes all the usual podcasts usual places and and the books are they on amazon or how do we get hold of them on amazon as well interestingly i'm just doing speaking from our hearts to Uh, I did a book in between called Emerging from the Forest, which is my own story about I overcame uh, from pain to that first stage purpose, overcoming these limiting beliefs, that tortuous journey. And if I can probably just leave with this one uh, parting shot for listeners, Fidel, that it took me decades to unlock that particular journey. What I now know to be true is that 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 particular one can be unlocked in seconds. In seconds.
0: Powerful stuff, I know. And uh, again, as a facilitator, I've 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 seen people overcome stuff very very quickly, remarkably. So. Yeah, brilliant, Paul. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Um, I have a feeling I'll we'll we'll, we'll be revisiting uh, you as a guest on on here, and um, I've got, also got a, a feeling that we'll be doing a lot of other stuff together. That we've definitely got some similarities in our stories there, and uh, and, uh, and a lot in common. And I look forward to continuing the conversation um so as wraps up another episode of the modern man podcast and um, we'll be back again uh, next week with another amazing guest and uh, we've got 10 more to go thank you all for joining me uh, if you want to find us online it's the modern man club on facebook and my website is the modern man uh, modern uk. thanks for tuning in